Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 139, Apollo 13. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. On April 13th, 1970, roughly 200,000 miles away from Earth, John or Jack Swigert, Fred Hayes, and James or Jim Lovell, the crew members of Apollo 13, had just wrapped up a TV broadcast before turning it in for the night. Nine minutes later, after Swigert flipped one switch for a routine churn of the liquid oxygen tanks, oxygen tank number two exploded, which led to a chain reaction that left the crew in a dire situation. Houston, we've had a problem. Rings over the audio loops. Say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. To set the stage, here's what Houston and the crew were up against. On the Apollo spacecraft, there were three main areas that ended up playing much different roles after the blast. The service module, the command module, and the lunar module. The service module was stocked with the oxygen, water, and power needed for the mission. However, it also housed the main propulsion and maneuvering systems for the spacecraft. When the oxygen tank exploded, the crew lost these consumables and the service module was rendered non-functional. The command module was the control center and served as the crew compartment, accommodating all three astronauts. This module was also designed for re-entry and was equipped with enough power and consumables only for the crew's descent back into Earth's atmosphere. However, the command module had to be powered down to avoid depleting its systems. If it hadn't been, then it would have been impossible for the crew to perform the re-entry operations to return to Earth. The lunar module was designed to make a landing on the moon while providing a home base on the lunar surface and was designed for only two astronauts. However, it ultimately ended up being a lifeboat for all three of them on this mission. It allowed the crew to save the command module supplies for re-entry because it had its own systems for power and consumables. Also, with the service module inoperable, the descent engine on the lunar module was the only way to provide propulsion to perform the maneuvers needed to set up the spacecraft's trajectory enough so the crew could get home. On top of that, it was extremely cold, drinking water and food were scarce, and condensation began to build up inside the spacecraft. Yet against all these odds, over the course of the next four days, the crew members and the ground support team tirelessly worked together, and Swigert, Hayes, and Lovell were safely brought back home on April 17, 1970. And it was because of the experience gained in rescuing the crew that the Apollo 13 mission was considered a successful failure. It's after this famous phrase, Houston, we've had a problem, where, in the face of adversity, it was the perseverance, intelligence, and guardianship of the flight controllers and engineers here in Houston, and the bravery of the Apollo 13 crew that made for a legendary trip back to Earth. It's after this incredible journey for which this podcast, Houston, we have a podcast, is named. So today, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 13 mission and the human ingenuity and spirit that brought the crew home safe, we sit down with Fred Hayes and Jim Lovell. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit by circuit. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Fred and Jim, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Glad to be here. Glad, glad to be here. Glad to join you. <laughs> uh, so this this uh, April marks the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13. That's the mission we're going to be talking about today. That's an incredible amount of time. Does it feel like 50 years have gone by? Fred, we'll start with you. Uh, well, at times it does, but now I'm, I'm getting at an age right now, I realize, yes, a lot of time has gone by. Uh, but, of course, over the years, uh, Jim and I have got to talk about it a lot at many, many events over, over the years. That's right, yeah. And I'm sure that more are coming up now with the 50th anniversary. Jim, uh, Jim what about you? Does it feel like 50 years? Uh, it does. It's a long time now since uh, that uh, flight occurred. Uh, but I, I keep thinking about it, and of course, uh, this year I'm getting a lot of uh, telephone calls re regarding it. 
I'm sure. Have you have you seen each other, uh, you and Fred, recently? Um, just through all of the, uh, I guess, all of these requests that have been coming down. I'm sure you're you're very busy around this time. No, I don't think we have. Uh, when was the last time we saw each other, Fred? Uh, it was at some event. I mean, yeah, we we that's when we would normally get together with ourselves and other comrades as well for several Apollo, like Apollo 11 events that were recently held for Apollo 11. Okay, yeah, so so events, yeah, around some of these anniversaries. Exactly. Uh, gentlemen, you're both aviators, military men. You, 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 uh, after NASA, you became corporate executives. Taking a snapshot right now, 50 years after Apollo 13, tell me about some of your proudest moments in your career and, uh, and just highlights now that you're, um, we're 50 years past this mark. Jim, we'll start with you. Well, uh, of course, the proudest moments for me was my tenure in the in the uh, NASA program and uh, flying uh, what four flights and uh, especially Apollo 8, and then of course the, uh, the the proud moment about coming back on 13 uh, and uh, working carefully with Mission Control to make this a uh, successful failure. <laughs> Fred, what about you? Well, I, th I think uh, Jim Jim and I both were were naval aviators. Now, he was a Navy guy, and I was a Marine guy, but other than that, we were both uh, wore the wings of gold. Uh, now, my, my NASA career included uh, a couple of backups before 13. I backed up uh, uh, Bill Anders on Apollo 8, which Jim flew, and I backed up Buzz Aldrin on Apollo 11 uh, with Jim. We were the backup crew on that one uh, and flew uh, 13, and then I backed up John Young on 16. Uh, with Grumman, I had with Grumman I started and ended up north of Grumman for 17 years. I guess the two uh, things I'm proud of is two contracts I had, major contracts, mm. was shuttle processing contract. So I, I uh, was involved in turning around space shuttles to go fly again <laughs> for 12 years. How about that? And the second one was the uh, system engineering integration contract I ran on early space station Freedom. Uh, so it was the beginnings of the ISS. Uh, it was a different shape and form when we were doing it, but that's what ended up being ISS. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's zoom back 50 years to, to this mission, Apollo 13. Um, I want to start with the launch. Jim, you were no stranger to the Saturn V, uh, this gigantic rocket launching on Apollo 8 first. Can you tell me about your experience that second time launching for Apollo 13? Well, Saturn V was like old hams to me because of Apollo 8, uh, but it was uh, an old man's rocket compared to the uh, Titan that uh, we flew on in Gemini. Uh, it was not uh, hard at all. The, it was a slow build-up on G-loading, and then finally uh, with the various uh, stages working, and uh, uh, I rather enjoyed it. Oh, really? Fred, what, now what about you? Well, I, the most unusual thing uh, to me of, of the uh, G's or motion was it was kind of herky-jerky uh, when the engines gimbled. The, the kind of motion, particularly sideways motion, you felt was unusual from airplane, and you had to say in turbulence or anything. Otherwise, like Jim said, the uh, G's were fairly modest. I think the peak was four and a half and we had both flown fighters, uh, even in our older fighters, uh, you could pull six, seven Gs in mm. combat maneuvering. Uh, so, you know, that, was, that, wasn't, that wasn't that big a deal compared to our airplane experience. Yeah, I could see why, why Jim called it an old man's rocket. Yeah, it was just, it, it, was, it was different. It, it wasn't as intense as maybe people think looking at this gigantic rocket that makes so much noise. Um, now, now, after the launch, it seems like things are going uh, pretty normal, of, of, of course, until it's time to uh, stir the tank. And then you hear this giant, hear and feel this explosion. Fred, can you tell me about your first thoughts um, when, when this event occurred? Well, I mean, uh, we had the bang, and uh, you know, it rang through this metallic structure. We're in metal vehicles. Uh, and, uh, of course, the first thing is, what was it? What was it? <laughs> and uh, at the time I got uh, to the left of the lunar module where I was putting away equipment we had out to do a show-and-tell TV show. Mm. I was still putting things away. 
Uh, by the time I drifted up to my position in the right couch, which had a lot of the uh, uh, cryogenics and the fuel cells and all of that, and I looked and saw one oxygen, two oxygen instruments uh, on tank two in the bottoms, both pressure and quantity. And I knew we had lost one oxygen tank almost for sure because there's two different kind of uh, uh, sensors that would feed those uh, dials. And so I knew we had lost a tank, and I knew we had, uh, that would constitute an abort. So I was sick to my stomach with disappointment because I knew pretty quick we had an aborted mission and we weren't going to get to land on the moon. Jim, did you have the same feeling, the same thought process that led you to, oh, no, we're going to have to abort and not land on the moon? It's about the same as, as Fred. I was just going down into the command module when the explosion occurred. I, I looked up at, uh, at Fred to see if he knew what caused the noise, and I could tell from his expression that, uh, that he didn't know at the time. And then I looked down at, uh, at Jack, and, uh, and I noticed that he, his uh, face was such that uh, he was wondering what was going on. And then, of course, when I got down into the command module, I saw that a warning light was on and that we had uh, lost fuel cell uh, to begin with. Uh, but the conclusion was uh, that I drifted over to the window and looked out out the window, and I can't tell you now why I did it, but when I did, I saw escaping at a high rate of speed a gaseous substance from the uh, back of our spacecraft, and it dawned on me that, uh, yeah, we had lost something, and then I looked at the oxygen gauges, and one read zero, and the other one was going down. So that, you know, it said to everything for us that this was a, a real problem. Were you thinking maybe maybe there's a way to fix this and we can land on the moon, or did you truly think, yeah, I think we're going to have to abort this? Well, I, I knew that this was not going to be a landing at this time, and I think even when I saw the gas you know, leaving, I, I knew that this was going to be a, a trial to try to get back to Earth. Yeah. Now... You know, you went through a lot of training on the ground first to, to get to this moment. And Jim, you even had an, an experience flying to the moon. So there was a lot of there was a lot of experience just just in that mission. But how did the training on what you thought could happen and training for different uh, scenarios? How did that compare to this actual scenario? Oh well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, this was all something entirely new. Mm. Done a lot of training. And we had thought about using the lunar module uh, in previous uh, works that we had done, but uh, the situation that put us in was one which was, uh, you know, uh, new to us at the time, and it was new to everybody, as a matter of fact. And therefore, we had to figure out what exactly went, went wrong, what do we have to work with, and uh, fortunately, we had communications with Mission Control, and that's how the things got started. Fred, now, what was uh, what was some of the some of the more important or more useful parts of your training that prepared you to deal with this problem? Oh, I don't think you could say it's a useful part. All, all the training was done in what we call simulations, where huh. we were tied to mission control from simulators at Kennedy. And there was actually a group uh, that worked uh, behind the scenes, SimSoup, that worked very diligently to try to prepare a set of failures that only they knew to trick us, uh, to make us and mission control look bad. So we went through, uh, I'd been through Jim too, through several missions before yeah. with several thousands of hours of this kind of uh, training. So, uh, but this, as Jim said, this was a, a, a unique uh, problem. It had not been, not been uh, considered, it had been considered, but if you had an explosion, if you looked at the, uh, uh, failure mean effects analysis on uh, explosions and mainly considered for rocket engines, but nevertheless, the answer was you'd lose the vehicle and the crew. And so obviously for this condition, there was no plan B ready. <laughs> and I think Jack Lausma capped it well. At one point when things settled a little bit, Jack Lausma was at Capcom and he said, he said, man, this is a heck of a sim. <laughs> Well, so so you mentioned in the sim, you know, you, you mentioned they're they're trying to trick us. They want they I think want you to think through some problems. But in the event of a real life contingency, um, tell me about the working with the flight controllers to solve the problem together. You know, thinking about what what can I solve, 
And then what can we rely on our smart group of flight controllers and engineers on the ground to help solve and balancing that? Jim. Well, of course, there was one of cooperation between both the mission control and ourselves. But you have to kind of look at the synopsis of this particular flight. If you were superstitious, this was the perfect flight to look at. <laughs> 13 being the name of the spacecraft, you know, uh, we'd had before the flight, we had uh, the threat of uh, measles. Uh, we lost the engine on the, uh, on the second stage of, uh, um, during the boost phase, uh, and now the explosion occurred. But the explosion occurred at just the right time to make sure that we could do our, or to get a uh, uh, return safely. If the explosion occurred, had we already gotten to the high velocity to go to the moon, we had probably had to go around the moon to come back home again, and I don't think the lunar module would have had the uh, electrical, electrical capacity to get us home. If the explosion occurred once we were in lunar orbit, or you know, or around the lunar surface, well, then we would have been uh, stranded uh, at the moon. Yeah, uh, Fred, did you have sort of the same thoughts that this happened at just the right time, or, or maybe you had some doubts that oh, maybe you know, some, something else could go wrong. No, I, I didn't think about the right time or wrong time. <laughs> to me, to me, it was a wrong time to have a problem. But yeah, uh, yeah. no, it, it came to me sometime later. Yeah. Yeah. Now I know um, uh, on the ground there was this, uh, you know, to, to to think about questions to ask you. I, I did go back and I watched the movie um, Apollo 13. Fantastic. And uh, I know there was this thought of should we do a direct direct abort? Should we go right back home or should we circle around the moon? And there were just there were just a lot of of unknowns. And it was it was all happening on the ground. You were up in you were up in Odyssey and in, and in Aquarius. Um, just sort of waiting for the direction. Did you have a sense of some of this, some of these decisions that were happening on the ground, and and considerations? Jim, we'll start with you. Well, yes, we thought of various things, what to do, uh, what we had on board to do uh, to get uh, home. But the first thing that the ground uh, said, and I think they were right, we got to get back on the free return course. We had changed our course because. Uh, they had thought that when we got to the moon and we started a descent, uh, we would probably have the sun overhead and we'd, uh, the moon surface would be wiped out. And so we changed our course to uh, another course, and we had to get back on that course. So that was the first thing that we had to do once we powered up the lunar module. Yeah. Now, after this event, you know, you're working through the problems and uh, – you're 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 going back around the moon because the 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 goal now the new mission is is we have to return home safely. So you know you throw out the old flight plan. Now you're now you're sort of dealing with this. Was there a lot of um, a lot of waiting, a lot of boredom in between some of these uh, key phases at this point? And uh, if so, what were you guys talking about, Fred? We'll start with you. Well, yeah, we had we had times uh, like Jim mentioned, we did that maneuver. And we had uh, coasting time to mm -hmm. get to around to the backside of the moon, where shortly two hours after that low point around the backside, we did another maneuver. So there was uh, some, uh, we want to call it relaxed time. It wasn't very relaxed. But yeah. uh, we, we, I don't recall we talked a lot at the time. Uh, uh, as we got to, to view the moon, uh, Jack, uh, Jack and I had some cameras ready to... Uh, sightsee and uh, shoot a bunch of pictures. We had several uh, Hasselblads uh, rigged uh, to shoot some pictures as we went around the moon. It turned out we were at a higher point than previous flights, uh, over 130 miles above the surface, which gave us a, bit, a larger span of the moon to shoot. Uh, Farouk Albaz, one of our trainers uh, for lunar geology and the lunar uh, scene, told us afterwards that we shot some very good pictures that had not been shot before. He, I think he was trying to make us feel good that we'd done something right on this mission, <laughs> uh, something to uh, contribute something. So at any rate, that's, uh, that, I don't recall talking very much about the situation. Now, now Jim, do you have a, a moment during, during the mission where you could actually take a step back and just realize where you were and, and appreciate some, some moment of awe during your journey around the moon? 
Well, yes, uh, of course, uh, there was no choice but to have to go around the moon to get back home again. We were glad that uh, the uh, uh, getting back on the free return course uh, uh, was was done because one of our problems in the uh, lunar module was the fact that we had the command service module attached to us, so the center of gravity of the lunar module was way out in left field, which meant that but you, you know, trying to control the lunar module was a little bit different. It was like uh, driving a car and you wanted to go right, you had to turn the wheel left. <laughs> uh, but we finally got through that okay. Yeah. Uh, Fred, do you remember seeing the Earth from the moon at any point, and what were those feelings? Well, it, o- overall, I guess one of the two uh, surprising or maybe unusual or, uh, as you say, awe things about flying in space, it was my first time. Uh, one was zero G, obviously experienced that on a continuum, but uh, mm. was the scenes out the window, not just around the moon, but even the earth, and as it uh, faded away as we left uh, swiftly. Uh, but then, it's, you know, looking at the moon as we went by, and of course seeing the, the small earth, which is a very beautiful body in contrast to the moon. So that the out the window views were uh, uh, just unbelievable at times. Uh, I'd look and see, am I really here looking at what I'm looking at? Uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, Fred, you mentioned uh, you mentioned there there was a lot of points where you weren't talking. I'm sure I'm sure there were moments where you were thinking about other things. Maybe you're thinking about your family. Jim, do you um, do you remember at some points just sort of wondering about your family, how they were doing, knowing that they were watching you and, and hoping for a safe return? Well, yes, of course, I thought about my family all the time, and I've also, you know, thought about just what, where I am and what I'm doing. And, yeah. uh, but it was one of these things, and I think that uh, people were trained to be test pilots and uh, looking at problems as they occur, that you, you have to have a positive attitude. You have to look at what you've got and how can you get home, and as long as we can get over one crisis after another, we kept, uh, you know, thinking positive, and uh, until we finally made the landing. And and you had that mindset too, Fred, about just trying to remain positive and stay the course and think about those next things, those next steps. Yeah, until it's over, it's not over. Yeah. Uh, I had one point uh, where I was alone in the lunar module and went in some compartment. I think I was looking for something to eat, and uh, found pictures of my family. It had been put place there. I, I didn't. Somebody else did. And uh, it made me think. But I, I was not worried so much about the family because I knew they had lots of support. At every, at every mission, uh, you had uh, other astronauts, uh, other wives. And I, I knew they would be at the home uh, to support the wife. And of course, NASA had a protocol officer that was normally posted there uh, that would take care of anything the wife wanted taken care of, uh, effectively answer the phone or go get groceries or whatever. So uh, I knew uh, the, the family at least was being uh, supported by others back home. Did you get a chance to talk to them? When was the next time you actually got to talk to your family after the mission? No, unlike, the mission? unlike later, I guess Skylab even, uh, no, we had no, uh, we only had the regular air to ground. Uh. Uh, to, to, so we never talked to the families till we got back. Yeah. Um, can you tell me what some of the, you know, you know, coming back from the mission, talk, talking uh, to the family and thinking about, thinking about your place after returning, you know, th- this mission, we thought it was going to go one way, but, but it didn't, but you, but you returned safely. Can you talk about um, just the conversations you had with the family and with some some of the flight control teams now that you were home safe. Um, what was going on there? Jim, we'll start with you. Well, naturally, when we finally got home, there was a big sigh of relief. And the, we met the family at uh, Hawaii, I believe. And, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, everybody was happy about that. But then, you know, you kind of look back and say, you know, my last mission, that's what I thought it was going to be, was to land on the moon, and now uh, that was no longer it. Mm. So there's a little bit of disappointment to it, even though uh, my wife didn't think there was any disappointment. She got me home, and uh, and that was the main thing. But then I realized, I realized over the years after I looked back on this flight, 
that it was a failure, but that it was uh, also a, a success in the fact that at the, uh, by the time Apollo 13 flew, this was the fifth flight to the moon. People were getting sort of bored by this time. <laughs> and uh, it suddenly brought back to the, the populace uh, the importance of the space program and what we're actually doing and the success we had in the past. And uh, it brought people back to looking at NASA in a more positive mode and, uh, and, uh, and following the flights that followed 13. Fred, did you see a sort of a, that same similar um, idea that there was, there was more, of, more attention towards some of the later Apollo missions? Well, that, one of the surprises uh, to me was when we got back was to see uh, some of the media, newspapers, uh, because we really didn't know how this was being taken. Mm. Uh, ne never on the radio was ever discussed uh, how this uh, mission with the problems was being received. Was it, or in fact, in the back, sort of back of my mind was, would this cause the cancellation of the program? Mm. Which I certainly didn't want on my tombstone. Uh, but at any rate, uh, it was amazing. I mean, it was worldwide attention, uh, worldwide prayers, uh, uh, wishing as well to get back. So I was, I was just amazed how that was uh, taken. It was not, as a Jim said, a successful failure. Uh, it, it was not taken that way at all. It was taken as a, a great achievement in uh, that we uh, got back safely. Yeah. Now, there was, there was a lot you had to endure in that the in that a lot of work that went into making that e either, you know, ca calling it a successful failure or, or just a, a, a mission to celebrate. There was a lot learned at, from a personal aspect, from a, from a human aspect. Um, Jim, do you recall anything that you learned personally, uh, just as a human being and what human beings are capable of to deal with problems like this and to learn from them and, and, uh, and adapt moving on? Well, of course, I, I think in, in the period that we were in there, I really learned that uh, you can't uh, suddenly uh, have a problem and then uh, and just uh, you know close your eyes and hope that there's a, a miracle coming on, uh, because the miracle is something that uh, you have to do yourself, or having people to help you at any kind of a problem that we have. And so. Uh, uh, to me, uh, this was a, a milestone uh, of my life, and we got over it. You know, of course, well, I've had crises uh, before, and I had crises after that, but <laughs> I, I take everyone uh, uh, very carefully and, and, and thoughtfully. You know, one, one thing that I admire about just the mission itself is just I know I know there was a lot of a lot of elements against you. You know, the, you had of of course the the stirring the oxygen tanks, the explosions, aborting the the moon landing. But just during the flight, I know it was cold. It was there was a lot of condensation. Um, there wasn't much drinking water. There was a lot that you just had to endure from a survivability survivability perspective. Can you tell me what was going through your mind, Fred, to to push through that and make sure that you were going to accomplish the mission and return home? Well, we, we did, uh, with the conditions, uh, powering down, it did get very chilly. I don't know the exact temperature in the limb. We didn't have a temperature gauge. Yeah. It did freeze the water tanks in the mothership uh, command module. In fact, I, I was told they found them still frozen when they inspected uh, the capsule after it had been recovered on the aircraft carrier. Uh, and uh, it, so we, we did the best we could. We got out our spare underwear. And uh, so I think I had three sets of underwear on under my uh, garments. And uh, ja Jim and I uh, donned our lunar boots. Uh, po poor Jack didn't have a set of lunar boots, so he had to suffer a little more. Plus, he got his feet wet with a water gun leak. Uh, so we, you know, we did the best we could with the clothing we had. Now, people ask, why don't we get in our suits? And the problem was, if you got in your suit uh, without air uh, hoses being able to hook up to for cooling, you'd you'd perspire, yeah. and you're worried about getting out uh, out of your suit uh, to to freeze to death if you had to go to the bathroom. And we only had one set of hoses available because one set was tied up with the lithium cartridge yeah. fix, and uh, so only one of us could have worn a suit at any given time. And, I think Jim decided we should all suffer equally, so <laughs> we, we did not try to put on spacesuits uh, during that during that period. 
but anyway. poor Fredo got got a little sick there on the way with a, a little mm. infection. So, you know, I had to keep him warm by bundling him up around him. I put my arms around him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that was an important element to to getting through all this. Right, was working together as a team. I'm, I'm guessing you guys are were very close during and 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 very close after. Just the sense of camaraderie to get through that, Jim. That's right. Yeah. Um, now here we are, you know, 50 years later talking about this again, and I'm sure, you know, this is not the, this is absolutely not the first time you've had to sit down and, and talk to people and tell this story. It's, it's just a fascinating story. Here we are 50 years later, still talking about it. Um, you've gone through so many, uh, there's books, there's movies, there's, there's all of different ways that you can learn about this mission. Is there something when, whenever people are telling this story? Either through a podcast, through a movie, something that just cannot be captured that you that you think is important to share. Fred, we can start with you. Well, one uh, direct aspect was uh, with that cold uh, temperature we were at, operating a much lower power level. Water sublimators, uh, which are there to capture moisture, like you br every time you're breathing out, you're breathing out moisture. Uh, was not able to do its job. We were well below its specifications, and water built up everywhere. We could see it in the limb looking through a netting wall. We couldn't afford a real wall in the limb for weight. Uh, you could see water globules on every turn of a connector or tubing, and that connector interfaces uh, sort of shimmering there with a little vibration from the glycol pump. And when uh, we got into the command module to power it up, we had to get towels out to wipe off the instrument panel. It was covered with water. So a real concern uh, was thinking about electric shorts. Well, what saved us from that, it's one of the things of accidents and tragedies, is you can learn from them, and that's what had happened with the Apollo 1 fire that killed the crew on the launch pad. Uh, we did a significant redesign of the command module, the, the, some structural things like the hatch, but also a very rigid rewiring uh, with specifications for wiring sealing that connector interfaces, which is done not just on the command module, but also the lunar modules. And uh, so anyway, that, uh, that, that fix that was made out of that accident, in essence, waterproofed all of that. So we did not suffer, probably would have suffered, maybe an electric short uh, with that water buildup everywhere. So that really effectively, the results and uh, out of that accident board and findings uh, helped save us on 13 as well. Yeah, the lessons from that. Jim, anything that you, you find that has not been captured that's, that's worth sharing? Well, yes, of course, one of the things that uh, occurred was the fact that uh, 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 we had, of course, used the lunar module as a lifeboat to get home, and uh, that means there were three people in that lunar module for four days, and the lunar module was designed for two people for, for two days, and consequently, uh, the carbon dioxide was building up because uh, they only provided enough uh, 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 things to, to remove the carbon dioxide or two people, and so it was getting oversaturated, the uh, container was. And so uh, we had to figure out a jury rig, and this was really the initiative on part of the uh, Mission Control and Crew Systems Division to use the canisters in the command module, which were squared in square, and to fit into a way, uh, facility that usually took uh, round canisters or oblong canisters. And uh, this was done, and then they uh, they uh, at Mission Control, they figured out how to do it. They sent up the words to us, and then the three of us put the thing together, and by God, it worked. And so it was a perfect example of teamwork and, uh, and, and thinking sort of outside the box, but also slowing down and not trying to rush things, and we got rid of the carbon dioxide to safely get home. Otherwise, uh, that would have been the end of us. Yeah. Fred, you talked about learning from Apollo 1 and, and some of the lessons learned from that redesign the capsule that ultimately led to something that helped you survive Apollo 13. 
I'm sure, you know, thinking about what Jim was just mentioning, some of these lessons learned on Apollo 13, carbon dioxide buildup, uh, jerry-rigging something, using existing um, materials, some of these lessons from Apollo 13 needed to be carried uh, to future missions. Uh, do, do you see some of that? Did, did, did you see some of that implemented, some of the lessons learned on Apollo 13 going forward? Well, it's probably more than I can think of, but uh, certainly uh, the fuel cells, the next-generation fuel cells were made so they were restartable, the ones on uh, space shuttle. Uh, our fuel cells, which Jim mentioned, that's one of the first things he noticed, the fuel cells, we had lost fuel cells. <clears throat> that was because the reactant valves had gotten closed by the G-shock of that explosion. Uh, and they were, and that immediately killed those fuel cells and they were not restartable in Apollo. Hmm. So there was a different, uh, I guess, specification put on the ones for uh, space shuttle. It could be restarted. Uh, simple things like I'm sure later missions, I know Apollo 14 started, had some blank paper. We had no blank paper, <laughs> which was a problem for writing some of these uh, different varieties of procedures. Uh -huh. uh, so that uh, also mods were made on Apollo 14 to add a one limb decent battery. And they also added uh, a set of cryogenic tanks on the opposite side of the spacecraft from the side where they were all clustered on our, our service module. Hmm. So, so, you know, some things like that were called it lessons learned that were applied downstream. Yeah. Jim, did you, did you see the same thing, some of these lessons from Apollo 13 going forward and, and just impacting future human spaceflight? Uh, yes, uh, just as Fred said, uh, they uh, fortunately they learned from mistakes, and uh, and that was it. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, one of the things they had to do, uh, which was un which was the cause of the accident, was back in uh, I think it was 1965, uh, the uh, uh, the, the spacecraft uh, uh, builder had said to to the people that were building the liquid oxygen tanks. To replace the thermostats uh, in the uh, liquid oxygen tanks from 28 volt to 40 volt, because they thought that perhaps uh, uh, sometime when the spacecraft is in those final stages prior to launch, and uh, and they're out at the at the launch site, uh, there was available 65 volt power, and if something happened, they would like to use that ground power rather than set up start up those fuel cells uh, uh, for ship's power. So they wanted those th those uh, thermostats changed, but unfortunately, uh, that directive was never never uh, followed, and the 28 volt thermostats was in the fuel cells at the time, or in the uh, oxygen tanks, and that was really one of the uh, items that caused the uh, explosion eventually. Yeah. Now, now you're both, uh, you know, definitely technically minded. I, I see a lot of uh, technical lessons learned. But I know even even after NASA just going through this, you both had um, careers in the private sector, uh, executives. I know Fred, you were at Grumman and 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 Jim, uh, a number of other uh, companies in in a leadership position in a management position. Were there were there values? Were there um, lessons from Apollo 13 or, or from your tenure at NASA that you carried into that private sector and into your management style and way of carrying yourself and, and working with teams? Fred, we'll start with you. Well, no, not, I think if you say uh, leadership, uh, for me, probably the founding uh, basis of uh, for me was an was the military, my military experience as a Marine Corps in two, two different Marine fighter squadrons. And I think it was being part of a military organization that uh, kind of got you set in the right direction for both following orders and giving orders uh, uh, in, a, in the right way to, to be a leader. And so, you know, that was kind of the foundation, I would say. So it was those military experiences that you carried into NASA and then carried forward from there. Yes. Yeah. And Jim, were you the same way? Yes, basically the same way. Of course, uh, the, the military is a great place to, to learn leadership. Yeah. And, uh, and even leadership after we got into, into NASA, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, to, uh, 
if it's a problem, to look at it very carefully to determine the solution. Just don't uh, jump into things, and uh, and uh, also you know, be uh, comfortable to the crew if something goes on. And that's what happened to all the flights that I was on. Uh, certainly, 13 was the same one. We all knew what to do, and we all did it. Now, you know, Apollo 13, I believe, lasted six days. But, you know, again, here we are 50 years later talking about it. Can you tell me how it shaped just the way the rest of your life, maybe through family, maybe through uh, because it captured the hearts and minds of so many people, uh, your your willingness to share this story? I mean, you're both here with me today, and I and I very much appreciate it. Fred, we'll start with you. How did how did those six days shape the rest of the next 50 years? I, I don't really think it uh, changed much for me. Uh, I, had, I did not, uh, I guess I looked at uh, flying in the space uh, as kind of just uh, a, a, an adjunct of my uh, aviation and test piloting career. Uh, it was not a religious type exper ex experience. Uh, for me, it was just another great adventure. Hmm. And uh, I, uh, I had I had no I'll call it change in mindset about things, particularly uh, uh, following following that flight. Of course, uh, the notoriety of that and being an astronaut obviously uh, helped in some ways with my career. Certainly, uh, probably gave me the start I had at Grumman, <laughs> for instance. Uh, but uh, you know, other than that, uh, that was a benefit uh, certainly. Yeah. But uh, that that's about it. Now, Jim, did you did you have something similar or maybe something different? Well, it's very similar, except for the fact that I never worried about uh, problems. You know, after I got yeah. over Apollo 13, I figured <laughs> that any other problems coming along are going to be, you know, survivable. And so uh, I, I just didn't, didn't have a, a, a real worry about following things. And I, I went through, you know, various different businesses, and uh, mm -hmm. I ended up doing quite a bit of speaking, and uh, which uh, brought back old memories of the flight that uh, Fred and I were on. <laughs> Yeah. Now, um, 50 years later, the, what we're talking about now is is this Artemis generation. We're talking about returning to the moon, but we're talking about we're talking about staying. Um, what are some of the values from you know working at NASA, working during the Apollo program that you think are important to pass on to this Artemis generation to the future generation? Fred, we'll start with you. Well, I, I'll have to say what uh, what I know about Artemis and and the program and de any detail is only what I get from the media. Oh, but sure. Uh, as I, I really am just interested in there be a continuation of exploration, mm. and there's been a lot of arguments about whether you go back to the moon or you go to Mars, but I'm uh, I'm happy that there'll be some sustenance in in uh, tackling it this way. Little uh, I think they're going that a little different way. Uh, it's more launches required than we had one launch to do it. I think there's several launches involved in Artemis and the, and the plans. But uh, otherwise, that's what I, I just I hope it uh, continues and uh, rejuvenates uh, people at, that are working here at NASA at the various uh, sites that are supporting it uh, to make it to make it all happen and have the and have the continued support through uh, Congress and the administration. What about exploration is is so valuable? Well, I think I think it's valuable uh, certainly from things that uh, we we learn just from Earth observations. Is that part of it as well? And learn learning it about our, our Earth and protecting it, and knowing about about things here. But otherwise, uh, very 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 long term, uh, there is obviously a concern about the survivability of the human race. Uh, mm -hmm. We've had major extinctions on Earth, hopefully none very soon again. But uh, there's something to be said that we should use some part of this uh, talent we're blessed with because we humans are uniquely uh, able to go outward and to explore that so far at least no other critters have showed up. I think they could do that. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of a blessing that we have and, and the ability we've been uh, giving uh, by the creator that we should maybe use our talent in that direction. Mm -hmm. Now, Jim, your thoughts about the, this next, uh, this future of exploration? Well, I, I think the, uh, the future of exploration has a lot to do with the makeup of the people that are, are, are growing up, and again, the, the, the children. 
I've uh, met a lot of people, you know, in their 40s and 50s now that said, look, I followed uh, the program when I was just a kid, and that sort of got me into engineering or into something else like that. And so it, the, the space program was essentially an incentive to a lot of people who, who liked the, what we were doing in space as they were children and then followed their, <clears throat> not followed their dreams and to, to do something else, not so much going into, into NASA or anything like that, but actually accomplishing something because of what we accomplished. Yeah. Do you think that's important to make sure there's this sense of inspiration, either through, you know, space exploration or other avenues, that, that sense of inspiring, you know, STEM fields and, and uh, people to go into more technical careers? That's right. I think that the space program has incentive to a lot of people to get into ethical businesses, engineering, or something like this nature. And aside from the physical, you know, introduction of new of new science and new engineering and new things that we that we deal with now every day, you know, the communications and the mm computer technology and things of this nature. Yeah. Fred, what inspired you to do something more technical, fly, flying aircraft? Um, what inspired you to to pursue that career? Uh, the Korean War. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was I was actually, uh, first two years of college, I was going to be a journalist. Oh. I ma was majoring in journalism, and uh, the Korean War had come along, and uh, I decided to serve my country, and... Mm. Uh, the program I went into was a naval aviation cadet program and became a pilot. So that caused a 90-degree turn and because I, I love flying, and I said, that's now my career. Somehow it's going to be in aviation. <laughs> now, uh, Jim, what was your inspiration to, to pursue that path? Well, uh, just about the same thing. Of course, the wars that, uh, you know, I, I got into uh, uh, in the naval aviation when I uh, graduated from the, from the Naval Academy. And then uh, I was, uh, you know, in this squadrons in between the wars. And then just before the, I, I guess it was the Vietnam at that time, uh, that uh, uh, I got into the space program. Yeah. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you both return to NASA uh, occasionally, uh, every once in a while. What do you see when you return here, uh, how things have shaped over, over 50 years? Fred, we'll start with you. Well, I, I, I'm here really not more as a visitor, I'd say, at JSC. I'm, I'm yeah. not involved, have not been involved technically, except for some of the contracts I had while I was at Northrop Grumman, uh, which is not, not since 1996 now. Hmm. But at any rate, I, I obviously come here uh, to the campus, and, of course, I see a lot of these added security features. <laughs> uh, that's happened everywhere, I guess, sure. at the government installation since 9-11. Uh, but otherwise, I, I come to support the, uh, the summer uh, uh, aerospace scholar groups. Uh, I've been here to talk to uh, teacher groups that uh, meet here and uh, events over at Space Center Houston uh, through the year. Since I live here in Houston, it's uh, convenient, and I've supported, uh, still supported NASA in that way and educate more in the education area. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim, what about you? Well, I, I, you know, uh, JSC has always been uh, the place where I, uh, you know, had all my experiences and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, we are going to have a 50th anniversary of Apollo 13 there at JSC, but it happened to be on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter, and uh -huh. so uh, uh, Kranz decided that, that wasn't the thing to do, and uh, so then I... Uh, I, I I can't go down to the new new time, and so Fredo, you're going to have to take over for me if you're going to go to that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we are we are at the at the fiftieth anniversary. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure you're getting a lot of these requests to come and and talk about it. Thinking about this anniversary, the golden anniversary of Apollo 13, what do you think is the legacy of Apollo 13? Jim, we'll start with you. Well, the legacy is that uh, that uh, essentially uh, don't give up, or essentially look, look at a problem and try to, in all aspects, to try to solve it. Uh, Thirteen was a classic example of that. But there, throughout life and throughout it, people, there's uh, problems all the time that are similar to what we had on Thirteen, uh, and uh, and the, the, you must uh, you know, have a positive attitude. <laughs> Your thoughts, Fred? 
No, I, th I think it's simply uh, the, the slogan, if you will, that's uh, come out and uh, it's, it's used in a lot of ways uh, I see these days uh, that came out of the movie about Apollo 13, and that was uh, failure is not an option. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. I love that. Um, gentlemen, uh, any, any final thoughts before, before we part ways? Um, now thinking about... Uh, now that we're we've been talking about Apollo 13, that we're approaching this 50th anniversary, any final thoughts, Jim? I'll pass it over to you first. Uh, no, I, I think that uh, that I like to see the program continue, uh, as long as it provides uh, positive uh, results uh, to help our country and help the world. Uh, I enjoyed my tenure uh, in the space program, and I hope that other people will do the same. Wonderful. Now, Fred. I don't. I don't think I have anything to add to what Jim said. I, I just hope the program uh, uh, it will be continue to be supported. Yeah. And we can move forward and uh, be at the moon first. Uh, let's go do the moon. <laughs> well, gentlemen, it has been such an honor and a privilege to talk to you today on the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13. Just really appreciate your time, and I wish you the best of luck in these next couple months as everyone else is going to be asking for your time as well and uh, for the future. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Well, thank you for the call. All right. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Fred Hayes and Jim Lovell 50 years after their historic mission. If you liked this podcast, we got a lot of others that go into the history of the Apollo program. Here on Houston, we have a podcast. You can find us at nasa.gov slash podcasts and the many other podcasts we have across the agency. If you want to talk to us, we're on social media. We're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on February 27th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, Kelly Humphreys, Stephanie Castillo, and to Jennifer Hernandez for preparing questions. Thanks again to Fred Hayes and Jim Lovell for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us how we did. We'll be back next week.